Tech Rack. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really different episode for you today, but I think a really important one. So I have with me today Dr. Jillian Isaac, who is one of my colleagues here at Johns Hopkins and the Associate Program Director for our residency program. And we're going to talk about, in honor of Mother's Day, which is coming up, and depending on when you listen to this, it may be before or after, but we're going to publish this right before Mother's Day this year in 2019. And what we want to talk about is the challenge that it can be to be a new mother uh, or a mother at all, but certainly a new mother while being a resident trainee. I'm sure this also applies to being a, an attending as a new mother, to being a CRNA as a new mother. But what we uh, experience personally, uh, Jillian much more than I, is being a resident and having uh, children. Now, I had children while I was a resident, but obviously I did not give birth to them. And in honor of Mother's Day, I thought it would be really useful to have somebody who could speak to what the experience was like herself that Jillian uh, had at least one of her kids when she was a resident. So I wanted to bring uh, Jillian on. And Jillian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start by just acknowledging, I guess, that having a child, and again, I, I by no means have experienced this personally, but just watching my wife go through it and, and watching others, friends and colleagues go through it, just pregnancy, childbirth, and raising a newborn is is incredibly challenging in and of itself. In fact, it's the kind of thing that, it, for people who aren't doing anything else is still really challenging. So in my mind, the idea of doing this while also doing a full-time residency is, if anything, I would call it awe-inspiring. So Jillian, let me ask you, you know, to say some words about what that was like for you and, and kind of what advice you have for women out there who are going through it now. Sure. So my experience was a little bit different in that I met my now husband when I was in medical school and he had a young daughter. She was four years old whose biological mother was not in the picture. And as we got serious, our relationship developed and then I got engaged and ultimately went through the process of really adopting her and raising her as my own. So to in the entire process of residency, uh, I had a daughter and another person to take care of. And I think before having a child, I would use the word that I was probably a fairly selfish person because you really invest a ton of time into your education and school and you put a lot of things on hold and on a shelf in order to be a medical student and then a resident. And really the only focus I had outside of that was probably my relationship with my husband. And now I had a, a child to care for and you can no longer afford to be selfish. You have someone who needs love and attention and food and education, help with homework, rides to school, pick up from school. And it really changes your whole focus in life. And I think one thing for me that was really unexpected about becoming a mother was I was a workaholic. I did an MD and a PhD. I've always loved to work and to study. And my whole perspective on life kind of changed in that moment of becoming a mom and really taking on this challenge and that I didn't really want to work as much. And I wasn't really prepared for that because now you're in this mindset, well, I love what I do, but I don't want to do it nearly as much. But then there are these physical demands on you that your job just gives you. You have to work that much. And finding the balance of it is incredibly challenging. And I think the reason why I wanted to talk about this today is I've had conversations with several of our women residents who are just really struggling with the balance. And I don't know that we really talk to each other and that we really understand that I think we're all struggling with finding the balance between not just being a resident and a mom, but nurturing all of our relationships, being a wife, being a caregiver, being a good doctor, and 
on any given day, I never feel like I'm good at any of them. <laughs> like maybe I'm a good mom today and tomorrow I'm a good wife and the next day I'm a good doctor, but I don't know if I ever really crush any of it on any given day. And I do think that sometimes the relationship that suffers the most is the one with my husband mm-hmm. because I have three children. Now I had two more and you know, I, give a lot to my job. I still do. And I really love what I do, but I have to give a lot to my kids. And I think sometimes in the day, you're just so tired, you crash into bed and then that relationship suffers. So I just wanted everyone out there to know that I don't think any of us are going through it alone. A lot of us feel the same challenges with balancing mom, life, work, relationship balance for lack of a, was a really non-eloquent way of saying it. (laughs) Yeah, no, but I know what you mean. And, and, you know, tell me if, if this rings true. I think that in general, for all of us in medicine, the imposter syndrome is something we all feel uh, often. And I certainly have residents and, and uh, even colleagues on faculty who, who come talk to me about this. And this idea that, you know, there's some piece of our minds that for some reason doesn't think that we are good enough to be where we are and thinks that at some point someone's going to find that out and that they will discover that we actually don't deserve to be where we are. And I, I wonder if that is even something that prevents women who have had kids and are feeling torn like you just described, torn between trying to be a good mom and a good wife and a good uh, resident uh, to, to not reach out because the fear is if you reach out and admit that you're feeling that way, that someone will say, oh, you're not good enough because you should be able to do this. Now, I, I know that as a program director, I would never say that. But I think people may be afraid that that may be the reception they get. And I, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that. I think that's a very interesting question in that I don't know if I ever had imposter syndrome per se, but I've always been a very high achieving person. And I think as physicians and people who've been very successful in their academic careers, we have a hard time showing flaws and showing weaknesses and letting other people be vulnerable. And I think it's those moments of vulnerability that are more challenging than necessarily feeling like I don't belong here. Uh, So for me, it's, it's finding that balance. And, you know, it's funny, I talk to residents every day about the academic process and promotion and finding your place. And I always say that I've, I found a nice middle ground where I have enough responsibility, but not so much that it's overwhelming. I can't Mm. take care of my family. And I am at peace with that. And I think that's probably the harder place to find is that you've always been like a high achieving person and you feel like you should get promoted and move up in the ranks. Being really at peace with where you are in your life right now. Like I feel like you only get to raise kids once and pretty soon they're going to be 18 and out the door. And then I can really go full on out with my career again. So I think for me, it's just finding that middle ground that worked for me. And it's not going to work for everyone. I know plenty of mothers who were really fine working the hours that they did and getting promoted. And they that was great for them. And I know a lot of women, we call them mommy jobs, who've taken these jobs that are maybe two, three days a week or working in the surgery center where you don't have nights and calls and weekends, you know, and it's the balance that works for you and your family. Right. Yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense. So let's say, you know, you've got a resident or it could be anybody, but let's just use the example of a resident who comes to you and says, I, that's how I feel. I feel so torn. I, I feel like I'm not doing any of these things well, right? Uh, I've got a new baby at home. I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job, spending enough time with her or him, being a good enough mom to him or her. I feel like I'm not being a good spouse and I feel like I'm not uh, doing the job in residency that I know I could do if I wasn't being torn in all these other directions. What, so one thing, as you said, is, you know, you, you tell people, look, 
maybe you don't, you know, you give yourself a break in terms of kind of shooting for the stars right now. Now, that may be more applicable to a faculty member who's trying to decide whether to kind of go for the promotion and really, you know, publish a ton right now. Maybe the answer is it's okay to wait. What about the resident? What do you say to the resident who's feeling that way? I think it's dependent on the resident and a lot of it is where they are in their career pathway. I think it's very different to be a six-month CA1 than a six-month CA3. And I also think the conversation I had recently, I ran into someone, I won't reveal details, but I was at the grocery store. And we had a 45-minute conversation at the grocery store about this specifically. And the question was about fellowship and do we keep pushing and keep going or do I take a break? And my advice was that in the grand scheme of career, which will probably be 40 years, taking six months off, 12 months off, 18 months, it sounds like a lot now when you're in the midst of it, but it really isn't. And you can put things on hold and take a deep breath and take some time for you and your family and then come back to it. So if you're really not sure about the fellowship and you feel like you're not being a great mom and you're not being a great wife, well, maybe it's the better option to go work for a year, take some time off and then really think about what comes next because you can always go back to it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So if you're that CA3 or even late CA2 and you're deciding about fellowship and you either have just had a kid or you know you're going to be soon, maybe thinking about uh, taking some control over your own schedule and not kind of riding that ever ever uh, you know on roller coaster of what's next, what's next, what's next and and the speed keeps picking up, which I think we all we all get caught up in. What about the, as you said, then there's a very big difference between that and the, the CA1 who's got two and a half years to go in residency. You know, what, what advice do you give them about how to, how to figure out how to be well during residency and not feel so stressed and torn, or is, it, is that possible? Honestly, I'm not sure how possible it is, and I have given a lot of women in this situation the advice to maybe take some time off, but I think – there's this real pressure to just get through. If I can just push through and if I can just get through and when I'm done, then I can take that deep breath. And I'm not sure if that's right or wrong. It just kind of is. But I do think that's probably the path that most people choose to take. And it's a suffer in silence. I'm just going to get through these next 18 months, 24 months. It's not a huge amount of time. I can do anything for a couple of years. But I think that leads to burnout and depression and self-loathing and a lot of other difficult mind traps. So it's tough giving advice, but my advice is if you need the time off, you should really try to take it. And honestly, and I'm going to be very fair, so I had my daughter before I even started residency, and the challenge was so great that I waited until I was done with residency to have another child. So my two older children are 12 years apart in age because I knew how hard it was, and I was like, I cannot do this with a newborn. So I really can't imagine. I didn't actually birth a child (laughs) and have a newborn. And the other thing I think is really shocking to a lot of women is just the profound change that your body and your heart go through when you do give birth to a child or even adopt a child that you, while you think you might be happy going back to work and having a workaholic and having a nanny and having someone else help with your child, the reality is when you get there, you don't want those things. You know, you just want to get home and play with your baby and nurse your baby and put your baby to bed and see them in the morning. And I don't think a lot of us are really prepared for the change. And it's probably very similar for dads too. I mean, we're talking all about moms, but I'm sure as a father, a lot of fathers go through the same process. 
Yeah, I mean, I so I had two kids while I was a resident, um, and I do think it's different. I mean, just as you said, the, your, obviously your body is not changing. You're not going through those those kind of changes. Um, but there is, uh, and I'm sure the, the other thing is we, we are obviously generalizing here, right? And there are going to be fathers who feel very different than some other fathers and mothers who very, feel very different than others. I think in general, um, you know, it is, uh, for better or for worse, uh, society has different pressures that they put on, on in general, on men and women. And I think, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, it does seem to me like it's a little easier for men to go back. Of course, it depends on the kind of support you have and whether you have a spouse and what your spouse is doing and if they're a resident too and all of that. But I felt like it was uh, a little easier for me to go back and do what I had to do as a resident than it was for some of my colleagues who were women who had the babies themselves. I mean, and some of those things are really obvious. I was not nursing the baby. So that in and of itself, I didn't have to pump all day long, right? I mean, that's a very obvious way in which it's different. Um, so I think there are some differences, but that, that's not to say it's not, it's not hard. And I do look back now, we have a, as you know, Jillian, uh, we have a new baby that we had when, uh, when I was no longer a resident, um, just a year ago. And, uh, there are things I am experiencing now in terms of her growth that I turn to my wife and I say, did the other two go through this? And she says, yeah, of course they did, but you just weren't around for it. Right. And that there's some sadness that goes along with that for sure. Um, and you know, it is what it is. I think in my mind, we should be thinking uh, systemically about how we approach uh, the training of our residents in general and whether or not the system that we have now is even one that is is possible to do well when people are having children regularly as residents. Um, it's a very different system. Uh, our lives are very different now than they were when this system was developed. Now, that's a whole other topic, and, and I think you know how we should redesign residency is something I think about a lot and speak about a lot, but you know I think that's what we want to talk about today is the system isn't going to change overnight. So given the system that we have, how can people get the support they need? So one thing you said is, you know, it, it is not a failure to decide to take some time off. And so if, if as a, a resident of, of any gender, you are struggling with uh, trying to balance being a parent and a physician and a spouse and a friend and maybe support for your family and all of that, thinking about talking to your program director and saying, I think I need to take a leave of absence – to uh, you know, get the rest of my life settled and feel like I can be there for my family and for my child and all that, that is a completely acceptable thing to discuss. And I think we stigmatize that as, as a failure when it is not a failure. It's just a choice. And it's not the right choice for everyone, but it is the right choice for some people. And that should be something that people are, are able to consider without feeling like they're failing by, by considering doing it. I also think very unique to an anesthesia residency are the number of tests that have to be taken. We have the AKT-01, six-month and 24-month, and then we have the annual ITEs, and then the basic exam, which comes at the end of an already stressful CA1 year. Yep. And while I understand why the board added these examinations. I just remember how stressful CA one year was at baseline. I can't imagine taking a board exam at the end of it. And I think that adds an additional challenge and an additional struggle because now you're faced with, I have to study for this test. I have to pass this test. And it's, do I study or do I spend some time with my children? And I think a lot of us do opt for spending time with kids. I, I mean, I tell a lot of residents this who've struggled with testing is I did incredibly poorly on my AKT. I think I had like the 12th percentile and I got called into my program director's office and I cried and I was humiliated. And now being on the other side of it, I realize 
how it's how not big of a deal it is, how much more of it is like, hey, we notice you're struggling. What can we do to help? Can we get rid of some of these barriers? Like, how can I support you? And so when you're not doing super well in tests, especially when you're the person who got the 260 on step one, you know, it's it's okay to not do as well on those exams. And it's okay when your program director talks to you because it's not meant to be punitive. It's a, hey, how can I help you? And I really hope that our residents and every resident sees that as a, we want to help. We want to see you succeed and what will it take? So I think having a child in CA one year on top of that is just insane. It is. It is absolutely. Uh, the, the, cause that's the thing we haven't talked about, right? Is that in addition to working long hours and then having a new baby, it's, it's not like when you finally get home from work, you can then spend the time with that baby. You know, you have to decide, do I spend time with that baby or do I study for the basic exam? And on top of preoperative assessments, calling your attending, Spending time with the spouse, significant other, you know, it, it just doesn't really ever end. And right. there's really never a time where you're not, quote unquote, on. Right. And, you know, a couple things. So one is that I totally agree with you. And I do think and I have pushed and will continue to push uh, the ABA to think about whether we've done the right thing by going towards these high stakes standardized tests especially when the multiple choice standardized test doesn't predict anything except how well you'll do on the next standardized test. We've now, for attendings, as you and I know, moved away from high stakes testing. So once you're in attending with maintenance of certification, you don't take a big, huge test every 10 years. You just do occasional what are called mocha minute questions, essentially questions that you can do on your own time, read the answers and explanations and learn from them. And so I think it's worth thinking about systemic change here as well. Should we be thinking about a system like that for residents as opposed to these huge tests with, which produce an enormous amount of anxiety and stress? Again, not something that's going to change overnight, but something I do think we should all be pushing for in terms of change. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I would say I 100% agree with that. And they also take it, at, especially in Baltimore where winters can be long and rough and dark hours, we're taking this exam at the end of you know a long, rough, dark period of time. So I found that the anxiety and stress around the ITE this year seemed higher than really it's ever been. And should fellowship programs even get these scores, should they really mean anything more than an individual marker of – standardized testing success. Right. And in fact, the ABA will will say these the ITE was never designed as something that was supposed to be released to fellowship or that was supposed to be used in any way to make decisions on who to accept for fellowship. And of course, I understand that the fellowship directors feel like they have very little to go on and so they want everything they can get. But I think there is a, a discussion at the ABA about maybe not allowing those to be released to fellowships, which I think makes a lot of sense. So, Jillian, what other tips do you have for residents who are in this situation struggling? So one piece of advice that I try to tell my residents who are really struggling with the balance, and you know this about me, is I try even now to have a really hard line between work and home. I do cross it a lot more now because my kids are a little older, a little more self-sufficient. But when they were young, like once I was home, I tried to be home. I tried to be really engaged with my kids, really engaged with my husband. And one way to do that was to try to be efficient at work and use every free minute of the day. So if I got my room turned over and I had 10 minutes, I would use that 10 minutes to like look up a case for the next day. Uh, at the end of the day, I try to track down an attending and do the preoperative uh, conversation before going home. Uh, I would, if I was pumping, I would try to use those 10 minutes to 
get anything in, a few questions, maybe a couple pages embarrassed, whatever I could. I tried really hard to be efficient. I also have a pretty long commute and I did in New York City. I took the train. So I had a long commute and I studied, you better believe, on that commute. And I think now I tell residents, really encourage residents to listen to podcasts or videos while they're commuting because you can get 20 to 45 minutes in on your drive in and drive out. So the more efficient you can do and the more you can pack into your day, the better. And then when you're home, you're home. And then if you do have to study, pick a couple hours on a Saturday and really say, okay, these are the few hours I'm going to go study and all the other time I'm going to spend with you. So the more you can kind of compartmentalize things, for me, the easier it got. Right. Now, obviously, you can't watch the videos while you're driving, but even just listening to them, even if you can't see the the, right. the actual um, the video portion, if you just listen to the audio, you can often get a lot out of that. So I think that makes a ton of sense, too. And, I mean, there are a couple of resources. I, I've been told – I haven't listened to them myself, but University of Kentucky has some great YouTube mm-hmm. high-yield keyword reviews that I've been told you can download and just listen to. And I'm not going to endorse any product, but there are a couple of products out there that have videos you can also live stream as just the audio. Yeah, I think that makes a, you know, a, a big difference if you can utilize that time. And one of the things listeners know that I love about audio podcasts is that you can do it without adding time to your day. So as you said, you can listen while you're commuting, while you're working out, um, you know, while you're pumping, whatever it is. And you can really, I think, get some good learning in there without adding extra time to your day. Um, all right. So, you know, I think one of the big things that I have heard from you as we've had these conversations and, and I know as, as residents have reached out to you is the importance of just that, reaching out, that there are uh, – everyone thinks they're the, they're the one who's struggling and there's something wrong with them. And that – of course, everyone's a big word, but a lot of people feel that way. They feel like – they're struggling with this and there must be something wrong with them. And I think if, if there's one message that I've learned from having these kind of conversations with you and others, it's that's so important to fight this idea that there's something wrong with you because you feel like you can't do it all. I can tell you for sure I would not be able to do it all. And I think that a lot of people are having the same struggles. But just like with anything, you don't know unless you reach out. And I love that our residents have you, Jillian, as somebody they can reach out to and, and hear your story and the struggles that you went through, and they can realize, you know, this isn't just me. And I bet that if they were able to talk to each other, and I think they do some, that the women who have had babies, in fact, they I know they share stories. I think that that's really helpful, too, to hear from others that, you know what, they struggled with those things, too. Both because it makes you feel like you're not alone and there's not, it's not, there's not some fault in you that this is difficult for you because it would be difficult for anyone. And because I think there's something to be said for talking to someone who had a kid and is now a couple years past it and can say it was super hard, but also there's a light at the end of that tunnel. I agree. And I do think anesthesia, it can be a bit lonely. You know, you're in an operating room, you're paying attention to your patient and vitals, and you have an attending come in and out, but you're not having deep, meaningful conversations. And at the end of the day, you just want to get out the door so you get home to your family or whatever other activity you want to do. And I actually don't know how much people are talking to each other. It's one of those things that I know is out there, but I don't think there's a great support system. And I think if we can support each other and really just get the message that it's not easy (laughs) and we are here for you and we hope you do talk about it and you do reach out because it's not going to get better until we know that there's a problem. And I don't know that suffering in silence is the right option. I agree. Definitely not. Definitely not. I think in in any of these ways, you know, I tell med students and residents all the time, if you have a patient with a poor outcome, 
that that is suffering in silence and feeling blaming blaming yourself for that outcome, whether or not you had a role in it, is super dangerous. You have to reach out. You have to find support. And when you do, you realize we've all been through that. And I think similarly, if you are a new mother or a mother in general or a new father or a new parent, you and you're feeling like you you are torn in a million directions and you feel like you're not good at any of them. I guarantee you're not the only one in your program or your group or your institution and reaching out is going to, I think, is going to help. It's going to provide you with that perspective that you're not alone, that others have struggled with the same thing and that they can help you and you can help them. And that makes a big difference. I agree. So, Jillian, I want to say, and and certainly I'll give you any last words that, you know, I just want to say my, my hat is off to the women out there who are having children while in residency or fellowship or training in general while working full-time. It is such an unbelievable uh, feat to be able to do it. Uh, I have no doubt that I would struggle to be able to even come close to doing what you all are out there doing. I have so much respect and truly awe in what you do, the fact that you not only are able to have children and take such good care of them, but also be full-time trainees. It is just something that is is truly incredible. I hope that if you need support, you are able to find it in your colleagues, in your program directors, in anybody out there who has been through the same thing or who will have a listening ear because you deserve it. And if there's one message that I would ask you to take home from this, it's just that there is you are doing incredible work, and it is not only not a problem with you, but completely normal to be struggling with how to balance it all. We all, those of us who aren't currently trying to balance it, are so, so appreciative of everything that you're doing, and we feel like you're an inspiration to all of us. So that's what I would want you to know, and I hope that you realize how appreciated you are. And Jillian, I'll, I'll let you say any last words. You well, have. yeah, I agree with everything that Jed said. I would just add that it does get better. It does get easier. And residency seems like it goes on forever, but it does go by quite quickly. And pretty soon you'll look back at it and be like, wow, residency went, went really quickly. When you're in the thick of it, it's it's really, really challenging. But when you're at the end of it, it, it there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't like cliches, but it does get much better and it gets much easier and life does change. So if you could just reach out, get support, hold on, you know, we'll get you through all the process of residency and get you through the end. Absolutely. And a big, big happy Mother's Day to yes. all you mothers out happy there. Happy Mother's Day. You deserve it. I hope that on Mother's Day you're not on call and you get some time off and you get to enjoy it and be pampered a little bit. Here's to you, all the mothers out there. Jillian, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Hopefully that was worthwhile and useful, especially for those of you out there who are trying to raise kids uh, in the midst of being trainees uh, and really for anyone who's trying to raise kids while being in medicine. Um, Thank you for listening. Let us know what you thought about this. And if you are out there and you've been through this or you have any tips for mothers out there as we get near Mother's Day here uh, on how they can get through this incredible task that they've taken on uh, in terms of having their children, being trainees, and doing it all, um, please leave a comment at ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where everyone can see and learn from you as well. Thank you so much. Uh, please, if you're a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating so others can find the show. 
And of course, if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC if you prefer that. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Of course, a huge thank you to Brian Park for making the outlines for some of the episodes and, of course, to Dennis Quo, the fantastic composer and physician who composes our original music for ACRAC. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. Thank you for listening. That's it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, a big happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Thanks for listening. Remember what you're doing out there every day in every way, being a mom, being a physician, being a spouse, partner, friend, everything that you are doing out there every day is incredibly important and really immensely valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.